Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, in our last episode, we looked at research that counts. What happens and what can get missed when we focus too narrowly on quantitative measures of success? And somewhat surprisingly, given the loaded nature of that topic, most of the grief that we took was over our musical choices, which some of our fans thought were a little dated there. But, you know, I I thought were totally current. Well, our topic today is very much related to the debate about what research counts. We are talking about state takeovers of school districts. And when you think about the debate over high-profile takeovers, as in New Orleans or Newark, New Jersey, the question of whether they quote-unquote worked is pretty exclusively focused on measures of student achievement, things like student test scores and graduation rates. Well, we are going to be hearing in a little while from Domingo Morrell. He's the author of a new book called Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy, about a consequence of school takeovers that's a little harder to measure, their political impact, particularly on black communities. But first, Jack has been waiting very patiently, jingling the keys to the time machine. The DeLorean is fired up and ready to go. I want you to tell us a little bit about the history of state takeovers. When do we start to see this? How? What kind of change does it represent in the, our thinking about schools and who has authority over them? So prior to the late 1980s, there were some takeovers uh, in states like Arkansas, Georgia, Texas, West Virginia, uh, always in the case of financial bankruptcy or fiscally ailing districts. But there's a real shift in the late 1980s, and it starts in New Jersey. Uh, The legislature passed a law in 1987, which took effect in 1988. And in 1989, uh, New Jersey took over the Jersey City schools. And they did cite uh, financial uh, distress as a part of the reason for the takeover. But really, it was about um, political intrusion into the school system, at least this was what was articulated. Um, personnel decisions being made on the basis of patronage and nepotism, um, sloppy financial record keeping, violations of the public bidding laws. These are some of the things that were cited uh, in the discussion of the state's takeover of Jersey City, which they originally had intended to last for what they said was at least five years. It turned out to be more than 30. Um, Then you see a kind of shift over time where uh, the next stage of takeover really was uh, by mayor's offices taking over school districts. So places like Boston in 1991 and Chicago in 1995 um, implemented a kind of theory of change which was about organizational efficiency and sustained and aligned leadership. And there was no end date for that takeover. Um, And so there was a kind of interesting uh, shift in the process there, which in fact made it about process, that it was about who should govern rather than about the current state of the schools. And that then morphs again uh, in the wake of No Child Left Behind. And the shift in the theory of change is about outcomes. And so it's less about process and it's more about outcomes. And the outcomes of concern are less like the ones articulated in the late 1980s 
in New Jersey, and they are more around the kinds of outcomes that we hear so much about today. Uh, student standardized test scores, graduation rates, attendance. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that uh, the Louisiana Recovery School District was created in 2003. That's two years before Hurricane Katrina. These ideas exist on the shelf waiting for a crisis or opportunity to implement them. Uh, so with the Recovery School District in Louisiana, you saw a new kind of theory of change here, which was about uh, holding schools accountable for outcomes, about rethinking the nature of uh, control and power uh, with regard to the relationship between the state and districts. And then when Katrina hit in 2005, um, they actually had the legislation in place that they needed in order to move 100 New Orleans schools over to the recovery school district. What we've seen then in the last 10 years since the creation of the Louisiana Recovery School District is the building out of this kind of model. Tennessee, for instance, has the Tennessee Achievement School District. Um, Michigan has the Education Achievement Authority. Um, in other cases, like in Massachusetts, uh, there's a law that requires districts declared to be chronically underperforming, uh, be taken under state receivership. And what you see here are these different theories of change coming together over time uh, that become really bound up together. And it's about performance, but it's also about who should govern. And then finally, it, it's loaded with much of uh, what that original takeover of Jersey City was loaded with. And that is questions about uh, fiduciary responsibility. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Domingo Morell and I would agree about, which is that these notions about who who is capable of being responsible um, and how well are local people taking care of their schools, those have never gone away. It's just that that thread has been wound together with these other threads about measuring outcomes uh, or about you know the process of governance. Our guest, Domingo Morel's interest in school takeovers took him to Newark, New Jersey, where state control of the schools recently ended after more than 20 years. But the outcome that he was most concerned with wasn't student test scores, but the takeover's political impact. To the point of these outcomes, uh, the type of uh, effect that these takeovers have on traditional educational outcomes and whether takeovers have worked or not, that's what kind of led me to really try to study takeovers because, you know, as a political scientist, uh, I'm obviously interested in politics. And I was interested in this question about how takeovers uh, affect communities, but the, the politics of it. Since school boards uh, are such an important part of a community's political empowerment, I mean, all the research you know, shows that before communities have a black mayor, uh, they first have black members on the city council. And before they have black members on the city council, they have members on the school board. And the same thing applies to Latino population. And so my question, what I was really interested in is thinking about, so how, how do takeovers not only affect, you know, educational outcomes, but the politics of it? And I started with this narrow question about, uh, the effects on school board representation. And what that led me to, uh, you know, I found that it does have a different effect on, on communities, but what it, uh, primarily between African American and Latino communities. But what I, what, what, 
that opened up doors to an examination that I had not been thinking about, uh, which was what causes a takeover. So what are the what are the reasons why states take over school districts? Remember back at the beginning of the episode when Jack climbed into the time machine and whisked us through the history of school district takeovers? Well, Morell wanted to understand the complex interplay of state, federal, and municipal power that determined which city's schools got taken over and which got left alone. And so the centralization of power by conservatives at the state level meant that they began to get involved in issues that uh, with issues that were you know historically relegated to local government education being one of them and so they start to intervene in local affairs uh, in, in in more greater significant ways and by the 1980s late 1980s and early 1990s you see this expansion of state takeovers of of school districts and this is happening in response to what uh, black political leadership is doing in the cities. And it presented a problem for conservatives on two fronts. The first is that the, the, the emergence of, uh, African American political power, um, posed a threat for Republicans. So by the 1970s, conservatives consolidated within the Republican Party, African Americans consolidating within the Democratic Party. So politically, in terms of partisanship, that posed a problem. But that wasn't it. Uh, while African Americans are gaining political empowerment, they're also making demands um, that were problematic for the conservatives as well. And in terms of education, this was um, significant because these communities were demanding more resources for their schools. In fact, as Morell began to examine what communities where the schools had been taken over had in common, something leapt out at him. They were cities that had not only made demands for more resources through the courts, they'd been successful at getting those demands met. Communities, low-resource communities, began to fight for greater uh, uh, resources at the state level. And the state of New Jersey was the first state to actually really make significant gains on in, in this area. In 1973, there's a case, uh, Robinson v. Cahill, which is based on a, a student, a uh, black student from Jersey City um, as a plaintiff, and they're successful there. But then eventually, by the mid-1980s, we start to see this bigger case, which uh, is called Abbott v. Burke, in this case, really starts to make some significant changes in the terms of the ways that schools uh, are funded, particularly in, in low-resource places like Newark. Across the country, similar things were happening. In fact, between 1980 and 2000, what Morell refers to in his book as the incubation period for state takeovers, plaintiffs won cases for increased school funding in 18 states. And in 14 of those states, legislatures passed school takeover laws. The four states where takeover laws weren't enacted were Montana, Vermont, South Dakota, and Wyoming. These four states were the only states that had not passed a takeover law following uh, a plaintiff's victories in the courts. And these happened to be the whitest states in the country, essentially. And so if you don't have these takeover, uh, um, these plaintiffs winning court cases during this period, 1980-2000, you essentially don't have any takeover laws that lead to eventually to take over a school district. And on top of that, if you don't have majority black cities led by um, a black 
political uh, officials, you also don't have takeovers happening during this period of time. There are a couple of school districts throughout this the, throughout the country that are majority white that experience takeovers, but overwhelmingly these takeovers are um, in places where African Americans are the majority and where they have significant uh, political empowerment, African American community that is. As Morell tracked these school takeovers up through the present day, he noticed another consistent theme. Whether it was Republicans or Democrats who were engineering the takeover, the argument was that Black leaders were essentially unable to run their own schools. So this is kind of consistent with uh, kind of the history of, of Black political empowerment where people uh, tried to suggest that, uh, number one, that this is problematic, you know, uh, for a number of reasons, but that essentially uh, African-American leaders, African-American communities can't be capable of governance. And so this is a major part of it. And school boards, because they provide the foundation, they're, you know, the entry point, they become a critical battleground in this, this, um, this kind of, this, this battle between, you know, Communities, you know, fighting for their rights to be essentially considered citizens, and those who, who who are trying to challenge that, and so that's, you know, that that's pretty consistent with our history as a nation. And it wasn't just the justifications of incompetence or out of control patronage or corruption that Morell encountered again and again. The case for taking over schools in these communities was often made in a way that implied that the cities and their leaders cared less about the kids there than the actors and the organizations behind the takeovers. In Newark, uh, you know, I, I write about this particular uh, aspect in, in, in the book about how, you know, part of the resistance uh, against uh, state intervention and, you know, had been for 23 years was based on the arguing uh challenging this notion that somehow the, that community is incapable of educating its own children. And so the logic behind a takeover in Newark and other places was that somehow at some level, the community failed to produce an adequate education for their children. And the reality is, you know, based on my analysis in Newark and other places, that these communities have been working really hard and have historically worked really hard to provide an adequate education for their children. And part of that struggle to provide a better education for their children is to secure more resources. But precisely at the time that they're winning cases to secure more resources is when the state comes in and takes over their schools. And so that logic doesn't make, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense if your argument is that you're not doing the right thing for your community. And then precisely at the time that you do and win, take a significant step towards getting what you need in order to provide an adequate education for the student, your students, that's when the take takeover comes in. And so this is kind of, uh, you know, takeover uh, provides a, kind of a lens from which to examine this larger phenomenon, which is consistent across our history here, that the initially it starts off with Black children are not entitled to an education, and we see that through much of our history. And then by 1954, with Brown v. Board, it starts to change, albeit not significantly, or not at least how people thought it would change. But but what Brown v. Board does is uh, systemically challenge the idea of the that African American children are not entitled to to an education. So at, at the very least, Brown v. Board helps us do that in, 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 in an institutional sense. But so 
once that is in somewhat settled, then the battle becomes against the stewards of black children's education, the caretakers, the parents, the, the local elected officials. The, the, the challenge towards, uh, against black education shifts from the children not being uh, uh, entitled to an education to now their care, caretakers, their stewards. And therefore, you see these, these charges of corruption, these charges of patronage, these charges of, you know, some, you know, malfeasance on the part of the, the leaders in the community. And so it's, it's, it's consistent with the story that th- these communities are undeserving of an, of an education, essentially. Take the example of New Orleans. If you believe the metrics that are supposed to matter, New Orleans is a takeover success story. But when Morell looked at the reforms through a political lens, he saw a much less positive picture. The replacement of African-American teachers and other school employees by a less local workforce, for example, eroded community authority over the schools. And that wasn't the only political repercussion of the takeover. Historically, school boards play an important part in the community's local political empowerment base. What happens after Katrina is that the state appoints, uh, state creates an 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 alternative school board to to oversee all of the charter schools. And since you have ninety plus percent of the schools are charter schools, then that makes the locally elected school board essentially non essential, uh, not necessary, and the community realizes this. So why participate in, in uh, school board elections when that school board, that traditional school board, doesn't have much authority at all? And so you start to see the decay, whereas where uh, commun- uh, schools have been always, have always been an essential part, an important part of a, of a community's political base for all of these reasons, economic, political, and otherwise, when that starts to get separated, you lose jobs, you lose political power, you lose say over the type of curriculum and so forth that's happening in the schools, and then you justify all of that on the grounds that the schools have improved to some degree, and even that is contested. It just, you know, it it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Morell even came up with a term to describe the seemingly contradictory argument that improving the outcomes of students requires weakening the political influence of the communities they're from. When I first arrived to Newark in 2012 to, as part of my dissertation research, you know, I had read everything that, uh, well, mostly everything, uh, that was uh, written about Newark and its experience with takeover, uh, the literature from scholars, uh, what the state had produced, that produced a 1,700-page report talking about all of the uh, challenges with the school district. I had read what the Star-Ledger had to say, what the New York Times had to say, and what others had to say. And all all that was, um, it, all of the literature at some point kind of, you know, uh, coalesced around this consensus that, again, that the community had failed to produce produce the inadequate education for the children. And what I had noticed based on my observations from the first school board meeting that I attended and every school board meeting after that and the meetings that I had in people's homes and churches and coffee shops and so forth was that this is a community that's very passionate about their education and they're very passionate about um, making sure that 
that their their students, their kids, their babies have an opportunity to be educated and 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 become the types of citizens that you know we all want our kids to become. And so that was that that observation kind of contradicted what the literature, in my view, was saying. And so it led me to kind of think about maybe you know takeovers the takeover in Newark and elsewhere is not necessarily because these individuals don't care, but it's precisely because they care. And by caring, it may have set off a series of political struggles that had, uh, you know, significant consequences for Newark. And um, what my, that, that kind of uh, re um, shapes my, my uh, research uh, uh, direction and, and, and leads me to really question the, the, the whole premise behind takeovers. And I, I think that, you know, I provide compelling evidence based, again, on history, based on my observations in these school districts and based on these larger uh, data set uh, analysis that is a lot more than just education here, that, that politics, is a, and in, politics and economics are uh, equally, if not more important, actually. That was Domingo Morel. He's an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University and the author of Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy. Definitely check it out. And we will be right back with a few additional insights and some exciting news. One of my favorite episodes that we did last year was with another political scientist named Sally Nuama about how closing schools in Chicago has undermined democracy in the city. In the neighborhoods where schools closed, Sally found that voter turnout dropped and civic engagement has declined. And talking to Domingo Morel reminded me so much of that episode. I think what both of them have in common is that because they were so deeply immersed in something that was going on in a community, they saw something that other researchers missed. For Sally, it started when she went back to the neighborhood where she grew up and saw that you know people viewed the proposed closure of a school there as almost a life or death matter. And for Domingo, it was really pretty similar. He picked up on something happening in Newark that you know that other researchers were seemed to be missing. I think it's important to remember here that you know two things can be true at the same time uh, that outcome measures can be uninspiring at the school level or at a district level. Um, and it can be the case that local people are being disempowered systematically um, and that their governance is perhaps every bit as legitimate and responsible and reasonable uh, as the governance in higher performing districts. For the past couple of decades, we've seen a conflation of these two very separate issues. Sometimes they're the same issue, that poor local governance does result in poor outcomes. Um, but oftentimes it is the case that uh, poor outcomes are not a reflection of uh, the failure of a community to govern its schools adequately. Uh, and it's really important to recognize the separateness of those issues in the discourse because if they're bound together, we're going to miss 
the commitment of local people, the degree to which they're involved, and then the level of outrage that they're going to experience when they have their schools taken away from them. But I think it's also sort of a ringing endorsement of broadening the field of who's researching this stuff. One of the points that that Jesse Rothstein made in our last episode that really stayed with me was this whole idea of a human capital pipeline within education research that, that researchers are being shaped to view the world in a particular way. What we learned from both Sally Nuama and Domingo Morel is that that these are examples of issues that communities are really passionate about that can get lost when you're so narrowly focused on metrics. And particularly when laws are structured in the way that they are, uh, if if we go on autopilot and if we don't question uh, accounts of why schools or districts are being taken over, um, there there will be a process that happens that seems reasonable, objective, measurable. Uh, that in fact may be that, but may also be something entirely different. Maybe political, and in fact, in some ways, racist. So, Jack. I've been watching you scribble away furiously on one of your many pieces of paper, and all I can see are two words, grand bargain, and a lot of underlines under it. So often, particularly here in Massachusetts, we hear that uh, in return for more state money, uh, there is going to be more state oversight, that that's what communities are going to need to accept. And one of the things that strikes me about this is that there's an implication that state money doesn't belong to the communities where it's being spent, um, that the state money belongs to some other group. Uh, and it has me thinking about what I would call a contribution claim versus a warrant claim. So the contribution claim would be that whoever actually uh, contributed these tax dollars, so these would be higher income earners perhaps, um, that they have a greater say uh, in terms of uh, how those dollars are spent. But then in a warrant claim, you would say that schools are not so different from potholes in the sense that some schools are going to need more attention than others and that we don't say, well, hey, I, I paid more in taxes, so I want all of that money spent on the roads in my area, then in fact, you address the concerns uh, where they are warranted. And at the root of this is an even bigger question, and that's the question of who is included when we talk about we. So when we talk about our money as a state. And that's often the language that's used by state legislators, um, by taxpayers' organizations, by the business community. When we talk about who the we is, um, who's included there? And these questions of race and class and ethnicity uh, are very much bound up with these questions of we. And so as we're thinking about these grand bargains, it's also really important to think about who has the power to bargain and who has the say in terms of making these determinations about accountability, uh, spending, oversight, and power. 
Nicely put, Jack. Well, speaking of financial resources, Have You Heard has some very exciting news. If you're a fan of this podcast, which I hope you are, now you have a way to show your love by supporting us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, you'll find all sorts of nifty offerings available to subscribers, like a new feature I'm calling In the Weeds with Jack Schneider. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And just a reminder that if you are enjoying the high quality content we've been serving up on a bi-weekly basis, leave us a review. Preferably a five-star review. At iTunes, that'll help us reach even more listeners. And reach our quantifiable goal. (laughs) I'm Jennifer Berkshire. This is Have You Heard.